starting the broadcast now. Hey folks, we are back for the epic conclusion to the epic season of Game of Thrones Season 5. So epic, in fact, that it broke HBO's viewership record with 8.11 million in the U.S., which means about 4% of all televisions in the United States were tuned to it. Pretty huge number. Which means it's not counting illegal downloads and only people in the U.S. and not even things like HBO Go. So, wow, huh? Hat tip to Watchers on the Wall for that. Always on top of the HBO numbers and casting and other such useful things. So since we have so much to talk about and we have a lot of great questions already waiting and surely more will pop up during the episode here now that we're live and taking a lot of your feedback, we're going to get started quickly. Welcome again to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, which, uh, well, sorry, HBO's Game of Thrones. It's all George R. R. Martin in my head. But... Of course, we will be talking quite a bit about the books and show, comparing them both, finding parallels, which, as we've been saying a bit this season, is getting harder and harder to do because the books and show are splitting and moving apart farther. And, of course, I am joined again by the Radio Westeros team. Welcome back, Lady Gwynn. Hi. Great to be here again. And your comrade-in-arms over there in England, Yoke Boy. Hey, really glad to be back for some more live action. Right on, yeah. So, folks, if you're not aware, you can click on the Q&A button. It should be on the upper right of your video screen there on the Google Plus Hangout page. And there are a list of questions there. You can submit your own. You can also upvote the ones you think are best. A bunch of them are already there waiting for us, but we're going to do them as we get to each location. So questions will be asked, or rather answered, when we get to each specific location. Quite a list of things went wrong for characters in this episode. We have bad things happening to people who have M, Y, and R in their name. If you're Miranda, or Marcella, or Marin. Bye. Good. Nice <laughs> knowing you. If you're Celise, Stannis' army, or John, well, you also had bad things happen to you. And Stannis as well. We'll discuss the possibilities with Stannis. It was a bit of a cliffhanger there. But of, of more appropriately titled cliffhangers would be uh, would apply to Danny and Arya. And then we have Sansa and Theon, who literally just basically jumped off a cliff. Yeah, so that's a not a cliffhanger, but a, we're waiting for what happened when they landed. <laughs> now, a few good things happened. Brienne got what she was wanting. Bronn to the surprise of us all, escaped Dorne without dying in any way. So B-R-N-N -N is a good good place to be, if name-wise there. Tyrion, Varys, Sam, and Gilly all ended on fairly positive notes. Cersei, things were looking up for her, sort of, but she has yet to hear about Marcella, so I wouldn't say it's actually going well for her. Ramsay and Roos, well, they won the battle, but they just lost... They're, you know, they just lost Sansa and, and Reek. And the rest of Team Daenerys is kind of a mixed bag as well. Masande and Grey Worm are faced with challenges. Jorah uh, Jora and Dario are out in the wilderness, and they don't really like each other, so we're not sure how that's going to go. 
Jamie, Davos, and Mel are kind of suffering right now after losing either everything or something really important. The Sand Snakes and Tristane are both in kind of trouble for what's going on and what they've what they've done or what they've been caught up in. Littlefinger, Loras, Marjorie, and of course Gendry forever are in limbo. So lots of different things to talk about. We're going to go to Winterfell first, then the North, then King's Landing, then Dorne, then Braavos, then Marine, then the Dothraki Sea, then the Wall. And uh, there wasn't a lot in terms of themes this episode. The Mother's Mercy title certainly applied in a lot of different ways. Selyse killing herself, she giving herself mercy is one little thing. Cersei is going to be in need of some mercy when she learns about Marcella. And we have, of course, Arya's Mercy chapter, which is covered, sort of, in this episode. And there's a lot of things still missing. Like I said, Littlefinger is missing. The Greyjoys, which we'll maybe see next season, it looks like. The Freys, other than Fat Walda, we didn't see them at all. Ghost was hardly in this season. The Tyrells haven't been around for a couple episodes, so they're kind of in limbo. Tommen kind of stuck in his room, I guess, fretting over beats, perhaps. And, of course, Team Brand didn't make any appearances at all this season. And we didn't see the Pink Letter. No Pink Letter, no conflict with 1-1, countless other minor events. We didn't see the death of Kevin or Pycelle, which is possibly just put off till later. We might see that early next season. No Fagon or Aegon the Sixth, you know, whether which, whichever title you prefer for him. And, of course, no Lady Stoneheart, and uh, there's hints that we'll see the Riverlands next season, so that dream is still barely alive. And, like I said, Wilder Frey is still on Arya's reduced list, so that's another hint that we might be seeing a lot more of the Riverlands last season. Next season, rather. <laughs> so let's go into Winterfell. Let us get moving. Let's see. We'll start with you, Lady Gwyn. Tell us about Sansa and finally using Chekhov's all there. Yeah. So she uses the all as a... a lockpick for a clever girl i uh, really thought once once she gets to the um the scene with um theon and miranda what i came away with was wow that was some great acting uh, especially by um especially theon was um, really amazing um sends his costuming again brilliant she's wearing that same cloak she wore when she fled king's landing and arrived in the vale Probably symbolizing transition for her. Um, the gown is very stark, <laughs> as in with a capital S. Similar similar to things that Kat might have worn. But she has those dragonfly accents on the front of the gown. She might remember she wore those in season three. And dragonflies symbolize transition or transformation also. So definitely a lot of symbolism in her costuming, which to me just really adds depth to this scene. So symbolizing her readiness for change or transition, she has a great line in this scene. If I'm going to die, let it happen while there's still some of me left. And that line seems to really inspire Theon. You see something in his face happen when she says that, which brings us to what happens next. <laughs> yeah, and what's interesting to me is the death. It's, it, I like to take a, a humorous view of of part of the Sansa Theon scenes here because they're, well, they're so dark, it needs a little humor thrown in there. And my take is that they, Theon pitches, well, he's Reek until he jumps, then he's back to being Theon, I guess. But he pushes Miranda off the wall and she goes splat. And I'm thinking to myself, Theon looks and he says, hey, that looks like a good idea. Let's go higher and we'll jump off the wall. <laughs> that went pretty well for her. <laughs> Let's try that. So... 
Uh, Euron himself said it, right? In the books, he said, you'll, you know, maybe we can fly, but we, we don't know if we don't try. So maybe we'll maybe we'll see. The first scene of season six is Sansa and Theon plummeting towards the ground, and all of a sudden they just take off, and they start flying. Yeah. So, so but Yoke Boy, take us through some of the differences between the way this scene was played out in the books and show so we can keep them straight. Okay, no problem. In the books... Theon's trying to escape with Jane Poole, obviously not Sansa, and also with the Spearwives. Uh, one of the Spearwives is called Frenya, and she has a rope with her, with which they plan to escape via the Winterfell walls. They were going to kind of scale down. Uh, but Frenya gets caught up fighting off Bolton guardsmen. I think it's six guardsmen she's kind of trapped. So that leads Holly, who is the spearman that's with Theon, to say, Oh, fuck me bloody, the rope. <laughs> Frenya has the rope. And at that point, the reader is wondering, you know, how the heck they're going to escape this. And then Holly gets shot with a crossbow, setting up this, you know, great moment in the books. It's a somewhat redemptive moment for Theon, obviously. He grabs Jane and he jumps from Winterfell Wars. So it, there's there's a, a lot of differences there, but in essence, it's the same kind of thing happening for Theon at least. Yeah. Yep. One thing that struck me in the show is there really didn't seem to be that much snow on the ground, and like as he said, Miranda was obviously dead. <laughs> audible splat <laughs> after falling from a much lesser height so this was a really shocking cliffhanger and i can imagine that for unsullied it was probably even more shocking book readers will probably fill in the details uh from winds of winter and there's this quote i saved her this is theon the outer wall of winterfell was 80 feet high but beneath the spot where he had jumped the snows had piled up to a depth of more than 40 a cold white pillow so I myself sort of mentally filled in a big, huge, fluffy snowdrift. <laughs> yeah, R'hllor, R'hllor received that loving sacrifice, so he melted so much of the snow. But R'hllor is a, a merciful god, obviously, because nothing is gentler than death by burning at the stake. So clearly he left some snow for them to land on because he, he, he thinks of everything. That's the kind of guy R'hllor is. Yeah. Okay, so here's a good question from GBT Jom. Do you think it possible for the Santa TV storyline to move toward a search for Bran slash Rickon? Using Theon, Brienne, Podrick, and maybe even Davos, like the books, they'll probably be chased by Ramsay to make it suspenseful. Thoughts? Well, I do think that's possible. I don't know what Sansa's going to do. I don't think she's just going to go north to the wall. The, the plot lines and the timelines don't work the same way they do in the show versus books and it seems like someone's got to go off and search for Rickon and maybe Bran as well. Davos could do that although it's kind of hard to see how he would do that on his own. So yeah I could see any of these characters that you name getting involved in that. I'm not so sure about Theon but I don't know what they're going to do with him. What, what do you guys think? Do you have any any thoughts on that? Yeah I actually could see Sansa going to the wall because I think that's Jane Poole is going to the wall. Right. And I just have this idea that Theon is pretty telegraphed that Theon might join the Night's Watch if he happens to survive. It was definitely one of the last things in his mind before he became Reek. So that's true. Back in Clash, he was thinking about he was Maester Lewin suggested. Yeah, then he was there. Theon. He was at that decision rather tragically. So 
it's possible, but there's all these other people every in the north that now have sort of nothing to do. So I'm sure there's plenty of action. Yeah, he'd be he'd make a good steward that Theon wouldn't he? He <laughs> said he he said he couldn't hardly hold a dagger and he can't draw a bow anymore. So I guess he wouldn't be a ranger, but. Yeah, maybe that would be a, a nice ending for Theon if he could join the Watch. Although I don't, I don't know that the Watch is going to survive itself as an institution. Either the Wildlings and or the White Walkers will take care of that, considering how unnumerous they are. But we'll talk about that a little more later. Here's one that's a little bit related from Billy Davis the Third. We have in season three, episode nine. Bran says to Rickon, "You and Asha and Shaggy Dog head for the last hearth." The Umbers are our bannermen. They will protect you. Our Sansa, Brienne, Theon, and Davos destined to meet him there with Great John. He wasn't at the wedding. Well, we do know that the actor playing Great John wasn't at the wedding because he left the show entirely. He, of course, the Great John was at the wedding in the books, and he was one of the few that they specifically took hostage in order to ensure the good behavior of the rest of the truculent Umbers, as they're called. So this is sort of related to what we just talked about, but we didn't speak to the specific possibility of Last Hearth, which I like that idea. I don't know if they wanted to go... I think they might do something more similar to that rather than bringing Skagos in, because they haven't used Skagos at all. They haven't mentioned it. It would be a little strange to just bring Skagos up and, and start and introduce us to it and say, oh, this is where Rickon is. I mean, they could do that. Show watchers, show only people might feel the same way about all this Ironborn stuff that's coming next season. They may have felt that way about Dorne. So maybe Skagos isn't that strange of a thing to introduce. And it might be really cool if they want to show, you know, the goat unicorn things. And I don't know. That could be fun. Do you guys have any thoughts on that possibility? No, not really. I think it, I think it sounded like an interesting idea, that's all. But it's just so hard to predict. Yeah, it really is. It's another one of those. They have a lot of different characters that we're talking about. When we, we can, It's easier to figure out what's going on with one or two characters in with five or six who were all kind of in limbo in a similar way. And it does make sense that some of them will cross paths. They're mm -hmm. all, in, given the law of conservation of actors and the law of conservation of plots, yeah, there's going to be some crossing paths between some of those characters. We can we can be sure of it, but the specifics, it's a little harder to get at. No, it's, it's so much harder than guessing what's going to happen in the books because things are telegraphed and... George can make it as big as he wants. There's factors coming into play in the show which, you know, throw good kind of foretelling out the window, I think. Yeah, that's very true. Okay, so let's go. Let's talk about north of Winterfell. Let's talk about the battle and Stannis and Melisandre and all that. So we asked last episode about what would happen with the morale. What would the effect of Stannis' burning Shireen have on his morale? Well, we learned it was... Quite the bad impact. They were willing to stick around in the bad weather, but they were not willing to stick around for a daughter burning. So there you go. The mercenaries are maybe not mm -hmm. such bad guys after all. No, just kidding. <laughs> so I, I thought it was interesting about Melisandre. It's the only time in the entire show from the first time she appears till now that she ever breaks confidence that she's ever not assured she's always just the most confident the most i mean she's got that religious fear fervor basically which is the most confident possibly a human being can ever feel when they feel like they have their chosen deity behind them and protecting them like, nothing gives you more confidence than that i would think and it all went away it vanished on her she's I imagine she's completely rethinking her life, which, given rumors about her character, she's potentially been a devout worshiper of the Lord of Light for 
80 years or more even are possible. We don't know how old she is, but she seems to be older than she looks by a lot. And even if she's not, this is still a life-changing development for her potentially. So, and it's interesting to see that, the subtlety. And I thought Carice did a good job of, of looking despondent and turning it all around, showing us an entirely different face. What do you guys think was different for her? What do you think caused the break? Do you think it was a little sudden or do you think it was it made sense or it was maybe a little bit rushed kind of the way things have gone this season in general? It was rushed, but um, it seemed to be when when half Stannis' men were reported to have left, right? That's when she... There was just this look in her eyes, like of, of total surprise. Yeah, she went from happy to... I, I think that she just figured it out. I think she just thought this is beyond beyond God. That Stannis is not the one. After all this time, you know what have I done? I've got to get out of here. This is all wrong. It'll be interesting to see if she has that, if and when she has that realization in the books and how it will how it will go. Because we might actually see it from her point of view inside her own mind, which should be really interesting to see rather than just seeing it on screen. The two things together will be pretty powerful, even if they don't line up exactly. So, yeah, it's like everything she knows is wrong now, basically. And there's no yet hinting like there is in the books. There's already hints that it's Jon Snow and not Stannis. But we haven't been given that clue at all in the show yet. Do you think that maybe means that something's going to be different? Or is it... I don't know. I'm not really sure how they're going to handle this. They're, I think that if they do the resurrection, which I certainly expect, it's going to be a little bit more, a little bit more out of nowhere. But not in, a, in another way. It won't be that out of nowhere because we've we've seen the resurrections from the Red God before, and even she was witness to Thoros, which doesn't happen in the book. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that she next season we could have a scene of her looking to a flames in desperation, and then get us. You know that that line. She looked in the flames, and all all she saw was snow. She could look into her flames and said, "Who is who is the Lord's chosen?" I know that they seem to have dropped Azora High, but she can ask, "Who am I supposed to follow?" And she can get a vision of snow, and then you know that could tee up the resurrection. That's just one idea I had. That's a good idea. Okay, so let's talk about how Stannis just presses on. He sees Solis is dead. He, then he's shortly after he hears Melisandre has left, and that, of course, is immediately comes after hearing the news of his army, half of his army leaving. But he's stubborn. A lot of people have criticized his decision to keep going, and I can see that criticism, but I also think that it, it's fair to note that he's desperate, he's lost everything, and even a stubborn thinker like Stannis can be prone to acting and reacting rashly in the face of such turmoil and such loss so i didn't mind it i think it's believable and it's also especially relatively compared to how other military things have gone on the show they don't always take a lot of care to show what a smart military commander would do so it has to be taken with a grain of salt anyway now a couple of suggest a couple of people have suggested the possibility that the bolton army was larger than Stannis was expecting and per perhaps more equipped and more mounted than we would have thought. And that's possibly because the sellswords changed size. You guys have thoughts on that? Yeah, I 
I hadn't considered it, but I think it's an interesting idea because that could be, you know, a nod or at least an idea that was taken from the Battle of Fire, which has been dropped. But that's a situation where we see sellswords changing sides um, more than once. So it's an interesting idea. The other thing I wanted to comment on was the, the overhead shot of that massive mounted army coming up and uh, surrounding the opposing force of foot soldiers is essentially very similar, you know, almost identical to Stannis arriving at the wall and defeating the wildlings. It was the same situation in reverse. And the, the camera work was really, really, very close. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I agree. That was really cool. I liked the shot, even though it was, it just looked so sad to seeing Stannis. It just looked so, you know, it didn't look like there was any hope. Uh, the scene, the shot definitely conveyed that, that Stannis' army was still in disarray and panicking and the Bolton army was just prepared and ready and that was not close. <laughs> so let's handle uh, a question here. One of the, this looks like the question with the most upvotes coming from our good friend Jeff Hartline, a.k.a. Brendan Beefish. And he says, you know what I'm going to ask about. Do events in show depicting Stannis Baratheon, whom some refer to as Stanley Barton on the show, because he's not nearly as deep or as intelligent, losing the Battle of Winterfell, does this mean that he'll lose the Battle of Winterfell in the Winds of Winter? So that's a good question. Why don't you take it away, young boy? Okay. Hi, Brendan. Really glad that you're uh, listening today. Um, first of all, I think we all know that the, the show just simply doesn't inform book canon. So if you're wondering if it's a confirmation, I, th I think we all know that no, it isn't. However, you know, what I think it's a good idea to do is look at the pieces that, you know, are, are kind of close to canon. And th this really refers to David Benioff's kind of illusion that Stannis is going to burn Shireen. So if that's a piece in the puzzle, if you're willing to concede that it now seems very, very likely because it seems to be from George's mouth, then we know that at some stage Stannis becomes so desperate that he's going to give up his own daughter. So he's going to kill Shireen. So... With that in mind, it does seem more likely that he'll have problems somewhere and thus more likely that he's going to have problems at the Battle of Winterfell, in my opinion. But it's really up to individuals, I think, to interpret what they're seeing. And nobody can say for surety. It's personal opinion really comes into it, I think. Um, personally, I think that Stannis was going to lose the Battle of Winterfell. But, you know, I've actually said that earlier in the season before it became pertinent and before events unfurled in the series. I personally think that people are too overconfident that he was just simply going to march into Winterfell and kind of crush the Boltons, given his army were already going to have a battle on the lake and they've, they've, some of them have been eating each other. So... Um, I do think if he does lose the battle in the books, that he will survive. That's my personal take. 
And I think that he will retreat, remembering that the piece in the puzzle seems to be Shireen. And that eventuality seems a long way off being possible as it currently stands. So something's just trying to join the dots to Shireen burning, really. And uh, one thing's for sure, they do have to condense things in the show. So if he does lose at Winterfell... I think we can be very sure that the sequence will be much different and, you know, perhaps to your relief, because I know you're a big Stannis fan, I don't think they'll make him out to be so stupid at that point. They won't have to cut any corners in the books. It won't have to be rushed. I don't think it will be Stanley Parton where you're calling <laughs> him. And uh, I think we'll see, if he does lose, I think we might see, a, you know, a competent man that was just trying to push a step too far. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that a lot. I think that it will be a lot different in the books. It may have a similar ending, so to speak, although I definitely think the burning will be different. I think the way he falls out with Melisandre will probably be a little different. And But I do think there's a good chance the Battle of Winterfell is where he has a reversal, um, even though it's been foreshadowed that he has some possible ways to get in and there's people that maybe let him in there's the tunnels all these different little potential uh, uh things that could work for him but that doesn't mean they will okay so let's talk about how the battle goes it's well there's not much to say about how the battle goes it went very poorly for stannis his army is wiped out so it was a bit of a cliffhanger when Brienne appears, but let's talk about Brienne in general, not just with what's going to happen, not just about with Stannis, but I want to talk about starting from the beginning of her scene where she has the choice of continuing to watch for Sansa and going off to get her revenge. This was predicted by several people earlier this season, several of you attentive watchers, noticed that possibility or guessed that possibility that, that she would it would be a choice of revenge or, or rescue for her. And it sure was, although she wasn't actually confronted with the choice. She didn't actually see the candle and, and have to go, okay, what do I do? That might have been a, more, a way to make it slightly more compelling for her to actually see the candle and then know that Stannis is nearby. But they didn't go that way, and that's fine. So do you think that she'll find Sansa later is an interesting question. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Um, yes, I think she might. Uh, definitely, you know, I, I mentioned that I could see Sansa and Theon showing up at the wall. Uh, I think Brienne could be the one to find them and get them there. Which could lead to Sansa being sent to Braavos uh, for safety. Why Braavos? Because it's, remember, Stannis has this massive debt to the Iron Bank. And of course, mm -hmm. in the books, we do have the Iron Bank arriving at the wall. So this could be a way to get... You know, the Iron Banker shows up to collect Stannis's debt, and they send Sansa away for safety, which is what I see happening with Jane Poole in The Winds of Winter. But on the other hand, it could be a parallel to how she lost Arya in Season 4, and we could just be in for more wandering from Brienne, failed in her mission, and having to reset, so to speak. <laughs> And there was a bit of a nod to Podrick there, wasn't there? Podrick, yeah. Pod recognized Stannis' banners, which might not seem that earth-shattering, but definitely a nod to Book Pod, because he's very good with the heraldry. Tyrion comments on how he knows all the, all the sigils and banners, so I think that was a little bit of a nod. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good catch. I certainly did catch that myself. 
So whether or not Stannis is dead, we're going to talk about that now. I, I, it's a great final line. If it was his final line, I thought, go on, do your duty. That, that's a, that would be a good thing to have on it for his epitaph. And I think the way they left it, although apparently the showrunners didn't think didn't mean to leave it ambiguously, they say he's dead. Of course, you don't necessarily have to trust them, uh, but they do. It is a bit of another very subtle nod on the along the lines of the subtle nod to Podrick and with his knowledge of banners, we have Brienne's cliffhanger ending to Feast for Crows, where she is hanging by a noose and shouts a word. We know the word would either be noose or sword. Of course, we know it was sword because she later appears in A Dance with Dragons to waylay Jamie through subterfuge. So I think that this was maybe a nod to that, although it may have just been an intentional, may have been an accidental nod. So <laughs> not entirely sure. But I think he's, I do think Stannis is dead. And But if you want to consider that he isn't, there will be throwing out some ideas throughout this episode on that possibility. So... Let's talk about that more, though. Um, Yoke Boy, go ahead. You've got some thoughts on this. Okay, I just want to say that, you know, I think he's 100% dead. And personally, I, I don't really understand why people are questioning <laughs> it. For me, I, 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 okay, they didn't actually show him dying, but for me, it was also not ambiguous. There was a Valyrian steel sword swooping, it seemed to be at his head. Um, it's the natural and correct time for him to die, in show canon anyway. He's lost absolutely everything and was the architect of his own downfall in the end. Um, he probably didn't really want to be alive at the end, I should think, at least partially, after burning his daughter, killing his brother, seeing his wife hanged, that was pretty horrible again. And then seeing his ar army defeated, he's, you imagine Stannis would be in that situation, losing everything, a captain that would, you know, be kind of proud to go down with his ship, as they say. <laughs> it's also tied up perfectly with Brienne keeping her vow to avenge Renly. So everything fits. I don't, I don't know why people are looking for something else. We know that they, you know, they don't like to keep hold of characters at the best of times. This just seems like, you know, the the perfect time for Stannis to be dead. He's got no story left at all in the show. Um, really looking forward to seeing if his demise ends in Brienne's hands in the books. That's something to think about because it's, you know, not necessarily going to be the same. But if so, how will this all come about? As you know, the story will no doubt go to different places. So it's really interesting to consider how it, it, it could come about. Yeah, it's, it, it's a different type of... It's a semi-spoiler. It's one of those things where we we can be reasonably sure that because of the way the show is going, that Stannis won't, say, end up on the Iron Throne in the books. But we can't be sure of a lot of these other specific things that will happen along the way. And you're right that the... Brienne killing him, being the one to finish him off? No way we can be sure of that at all. In fact, I think there's a lot of evidence that it's not going to go that way in the books. Because for one thing, she never thinks about him anymore in her in her, in her her point of view. It just doesn't seem to happen. Do you have any thoughts on that, Lady Gwen? I've always wondered if she will kill him. Because to me, Brienne is 
all about keeping vows. And even though she doesn't think about that one, she's very consumed with her vows to Kat and Jamie. It's made really clear that she's vowed, you know, he told us that. She vowed to kill Stannis when she was talking to Catelyn. So it's just something I've always had in the back of my head. I never figured, never connected the dots enough to figure out how would she get from where she is to, you know, fulfill this. Yeah, assuming he is dead, then Brienne is... Well, she's got quite the uh, notches on her sword, doesn't she? Stannis and Sandor. Of course, <laughs> Sandor is probably not dead in the books either, and maybe he'll they'll pop him back up in the show too. That's a, that's kind of up in the air. So it's the same kind of thing. Us book readers think Stan- Sandor is still alive, and the show reader show watchers think that Stannis is still alive. <laughs> <laughs> we all have to wait to find out the truth. I also thought it was really interesting that Stannis admitted not only to using blood magic, but he admitted to killing Renly, which is, he doesn't, he is in denial about that in the books, which I wonder if he'll, that's something else I wonder if he'll have that moment of clarity where he admits to himself that's what he did. Or maybe he'll just go down being stubborn, you know, Renly was a traitor, you know, he was my brother, but he was also a traitor, I don't know. So, let's handle this question here, we've got a good question here from our friends over at Tony and Bar's YouTube, they do, uh, real quick, a shout-out for them. Bar, uh, Bar DePorto and Tony Teflon are doing Q&As also. So if you guys can't get enough Game of Thrones slash Song of Ice and Fire Q&A sessions, check them out. Now, the question is, Stannis alive or dead? If he is, why won't they show it? There's enough gore on this episode. Why not kill the man who burnt his daughter on camera? Well, we've already addressed whether or not we think he's alive or not. But we, as far as why they wouldn't show it, well, the showrunners were commented on that. They, yeah. So, you, Lady Gwen, you've you, you've uh, got some thoughts on this as well as the, the exact quote that came from them. Right. Okay. So first, just want to say hi to Bar. Really enjoying you and Tony's team up, and we are fans of your channel. So, thank you for this question. I think Yokoi and Aziz already pretty much answered the first bit. Well, we all weighed in on that. Whether we think Stannis is alive or dead. We did find a comment from the director, David Nutter, regarding why not show the death on camera. He says, it would have been gratuitous. You really got a sense that Stannis had nothing else to live for. Brienne's lifelong mission had come to an end. It's a situation in which Stannis was ready to die and prepared to die. So it seems like it was an artistic choice. You're right, it does seem strange that they didn't show the gore when they were showing plenty of it elsewhere. But I don't think it was ever supposed to be purposefully ambiguous. So perhaps it's only book readers who are questioning it, or I don't know who. Yeah. <laughs> Could be both. <laughs> um, but I, I per- personally don't think it was supposed to be ambiguous. So we get the scene that ends with the sword swing and cuts away. It cuts away to Ramsay finishing a sword swing into some hapless mercenary or Baratheon soldier. And he's, of course, happy to be butchering people as he's in his natural element. You know, that's what he loves to do. He's killing people. But one thing I thought was a bit of an oversight was that there's no talk whatsoever about Ramsey or effort put into Ramsey looking for Stannis' body <laughs> or looking for him alive at that. But it could, we could chalk that up to Ramsey's arrogance. But I, I guarantee Roos would not be okay with that. Roos doesn't like the loose ends. He even, even show Roos has shown that he cares about such things uh, because he was concerned about the Blackfish escaping the Red Wedding. And that's not even 
hardly a threat to him specifically. It's more of a threat to his ally, Walter Frey, who wasn't concerned himself. But speaking of, of Roos, real quick, question from Darren Tucker. Roos not being seen in the episode was odd. Any theories? Well, I know there's a book theory going around that Roos is already dead, that the pink letter was sent is perhaps evidence that Ramsey, in, well, evidence in part, it's evidence of many things potentially, but in particular for this case, that Roos is dead, that Ramsey has offed him partly because his wife was pregnant and partly because, well, he's a greedy guy who doesn't control his baser instincts. And he's shown that he's afraid of his father, but that doesn't mean he can, couldn't get over that. I don't have any theories as to why he wasn't there on the show, because the show just does has to take shortcuts and, and doesn't have time to show everyone. So I don't know that there's anything sneaky about it. If there is something sneaky about it, that would be it. It would ha I can't think of any other good possibilities other than that he's dead. But I think they would show that. I think they would at least give us a hint for that. I don't think it would be complete, done completely off screen, left for us to notice only through his apps. So, and our... Our friend and listener Eric R pointed out a good, good little nod, another very subtle nod, which was remember when the horse was on fire and ran past Melisandre in the previous episode. That is perhaps a nod to Theon and Ramsay, because Theon's last sight before he's knocked unconscious, when Ramsay reveals himself just before Winterfell is sacked, is of his own horse Smiler on fire. So. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I was just reading that scene, uh, working on uh, doing some Theon research, and uh, just read that scene a couple days ago. Thought the exact same thing. It's like burning horse. Oh, where did I just see that? <laughs> yeah, so that's one thing I like to give the show credit for. They they sometimes I think some of these parallels are accidental, but they do they throw in a surprising amount of these little nods to the books that are really obscure. Which obscure details is one of those things that's a good fit for the Song of Ice and Fire universe. So. But staying on the topic of Ramsey, what's he going to do when he finds Sansa gone? What do you guys think? Any thoughts on that? That's, that's, uh, he's going to be mad. <laughs> yeah, Ramsey's going to be mad. And Miranda's dead. Yeah, it's double anger there. Yeah, oh, his head might explode. We can only hope. <laughs> well, it, it'll be a bittersweet day because he's also, in a way, secure the North <laughs> by virtue of handing Stannis' ass to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's going to come in thinking, oh, I'm the best, I'm the best. Wait, where are all my women? Uh, <laughs> one's gone, one's in pieces. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, if Ramsay did write the pink letter, that's where we'll see that level of pink letter kind of anger. So if you subscribe to that idea, then I think that's sort of where you where you'll get that. What do you guys think is next in general for the Boltons? I, I see, I don't see a conf much conflict for them. There's not a lot of opportunity there, so there has to be something new to, to have a conflict with, but some opportunities are there. There's already the talk of Littlefinger's plan, which we'll discuss that a bit more in a minute. The fact that his plan did not go uh, uh, the way he thought it would. The, the Stannis did not win, did not beat the Boltons, and they didn't even really hurt each other that much. The Boltons came out of it looking good. They're probably in better shape than they were. So there's no, since the, the, there's no books style political conflict with the North, no like, you know, Great Northern conspiracy, anything along those lines. So what is Roos going to do? Is there going to be, is he going to declare himself king in the North? Is he going to have a conflict with the Wildlings? Or are the, are the Vale Knights going to invade anyway, despite not being weakened? Is Littlefinger still going to try to make that play? 
A lot of good possibilities there. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that in general, or if it's just too up in the air. I, I think he'll he'll get he, uh, little finger will be in there with the the Vale Knights, and and he'll try and find Sansa, and I think Sansa will end up in Winterfell. But yeah, I, I would go with the Vale Knights root it being the ones to root out a fresh army that's what's needed a, you know a fresh army that they've stayed out the war of the five kings very valuable i think that all the army the other armies can be taken up invading king's landing and fighting for or against danny but the veil vale army fresh and it's really been telegraphed that they, they little finger might take them into the north well here's a good time to ask uh rather to answer a question from Watcher Jeremy Gabriel, if Mel's vision is accurate, how do we expect the Bolton's banners to be burning now, considering the last episode? Okay, well, as we all probably know by now, Mel's visions are real, essentially, but she misinterprets them a lot of times. So if, if the basic image is burning Bolton banners, we do expect to see that at some point, or something that is a literary parallel to that something that she could have seen. But that seems very specific, Bolton Banner's burning. So yes, I, I suspect that means something far in the future. Uh, you know, uh, the Bolton's losing finally to, maybe to the Vale Knights or to even possibly to Wildlings. The Wildlings, you know, something this is just occurring to me, the Wildlings could take over the role of the Mountain Clans in the North where they are stubborn and wanting to go after the Boltons. I don't know how they would get us to believe that the Wildlings hate the Boltons so much like they do, like the mountain clans do, but maybe they don't need us to hate them. Maybe, well, maybe the Sansa-Tormund marriage idea is going to rear its gingery head again, and if Tormund is sort of a de facto leader and he marries Sansa, then he can lead his people down there to fight the Boltons. Seems kind of awkward, but at the beginning of the season, this idea was introduced by one of our watchers, and I, I said it was an interesting idea, but I basically dismissed it. Now I'm not so sure. I don't like it. But I think it could definitely happen. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. If the Vale does come north to invade, they'll be fight facing a full-strength Bolton army. Uh, so uh, possibly backed with some mercenaries. I don't know if that's really what's happening or not. But the Vale doesn't... I mean, the north is not going to love Littlefinger. They, they don't love the Boltons, but I think they're going to hate foreigners, especially someone without who isn't a fighter, who isn't a their kind of guy, uh, so to speak. So, it's which is why you need Sansa. Yeah, you know, which uh, you know, I'm sure next season he's going to be searching everywhere for her. Yeah, and I think I think though, like I said, I think he'll end up like you say. He's a, he's a foreigner. He would be seen as a foreigner, but not with Sansa. That, that's true, and it's it's kind of like they're both. It's it's you can see what's happening. Sansa is the key to both the Boltons and the Littlefingers taking of the North. She's so crucial as a figurehead. It's such an important part of her story. And that's why so many of us are hoping she gets her own agency and gets to do things on her own. Because being human stepping state or stepping stone up to wardenship of the North is, eh. <laughs> it's, it, the, from, a, from a whole, as a whole, it's an interesting plot line. But from just from Sansa's storyline, it's not super interesting. But I do like it overall, but not from Sansa's point of view. Now, it's important also to point out that Littlefinger didn't say risk everything it's not like he's banking his whole life his whole ambition on this whole thing working but he did risk sansa and he does want winterfell so uh, lady gun what do you think about Littlefinger situation here this is something that i thought got lost in the shuffle a bit and it's pretty interesting to talk about yeah i think it did too uh 
think Littlefinger was hoping that Stannis was going to do his dirty work. That was his gamble. We know that he likes to have clean hands. Uh, but, you know, now that didn't work out. He's in a very precarious position. The political situation in King's Landing is not at all in his favor between the faith and he apparently gambled that Stannis was not only going to save Sansa, but cause some sort of uh, problem or distractions um, in King's Landing. Uh, so things are not going well for him there. Having lost Sansa, it would be very difficult to bring the Vale north if that becomes known. So I think it's going to come down to maintaining the control of information, which we've seen him do before. He got Sansa out of King's Landing into the Vale and up to Winterfell without anybody ever knowing about it. So that seems to be his strong suit. Uh, so if he manages that, I think he'll still be able to leverage the Vale army, take Winterfell, which we all think is his ultimate goal, and then he'll have to focus on finding Sansa wherever she lands. So before we, I think we should move on to the King's Landing in a minute, but before we do, we've got a couple of good other questions that have popped up. First of all, here we have a question from Johannes Petman. Who can defeat Ramsey now? The 50 best Ironborn killers couldn't do it. <laughs> no, that scene always makes me laugh just thinking about it. The best commander in Westeros couldn't do it. So who? Well, honestly, if the wild, if my theories on the Wildlings or the Vale, my theories, if the Wildlings don't do this or if the Vale Knights don't do it, it might be the White Walkers. <laughs> I'm not really sure who else there is. That might have it might have to be that, or Ramsey might undo himself somehow by overreaching. He might get too ambitious. He might get too greedy. Maybe Roos puts it takes him out because he's overreached himself. I think this is something where the book and show are very different, because Ramsey and Roos are both on screen quite a bit. It's not like one of them is more important than the other. But Ramsey is the more important of the two in the show. I think the show it goes out of its way to make Ramsey kind of a main villain, where Roos is a little off to the side, where it's not the same in the books, where they're kind of co-villains of a sort. <laughs> so I don't know. Other than the White Walkers, besides who we've mentioned, I don't know who could do it. It doesn't, it doesn't look good in the, at the moment for anyone being able to take out Ramsey. They're really well entrenched, especially in show canon. In the book canon, there's lots of leaks and lots of things that could go wrong, especially the Manderleys and the rest of the North. But we have no rest of the North in the show. <laughs> okay, we also have a question from Jason Smith. Sansa and Reek are a few yards outside Winterfell. How does Ramsey, the great people hunter, not recapture them almost immediately? Well, I have to agree that if they don't have help, it's going to be a little hard to believe. Because Ramsey is a good hunter. He has his dogs. He has all that. So I would think that he has to have, or they have to have help. Someone has to help them. Brienne, who seems to know exactly where to be at the right place at the right time these days, is, is the most likely candidate to rescue them. We could have wildlings potentially drifting south. I don't know. There's there's some possibilities, but if they just have them get away on their own, uh, it would be hard to swallow. That would be a, a bit of an eye roll moment. Okay, let us move on to King's Landing. Lots to talk about at King's Landing. Cersei's walk was really impressive, but first we have her confession. She confessed but didn't name Jamie, so that is still up in the air, whether or not she'll get in trouble for not admitting that Jamie was her lover. Uh, the High Sparrows certainly seem to know it. 
Yuck Boy, your thoughts on this scene? Well, just a book comparison. In the book, Cersei, she's trying to be smart here by confessing to, as she thinks, too much rather than too little, while hotly denying the other more serious charges against her. But in essence, she actually opens herself up to the other charges by confessing her guilt of fornication with two individuals that have given testimony, the convert Lancel Lannister and the tortured Osney Kettleblack. She ends up really giving giving extra weight to Lancel and Osney's testimonies by admitting her intimacies with them. And these two men have knowledge of her actions that relate to serious charges against her. She even knows that Osney has spoken against her. So, so it's typical Cersei in the book, thinking, thinking she's been really clever, but really opening the floodgates against herself. That's kind of a recurring theme, isn't it? <laughs> she's like, oh, I've got the best plan ever. And no, that was actually pretty <laughs> stupid. <laughs> Like I said, the walk was quite well done. I thought some I've seen some people saying they didn't like it. They thought it was they could really tell that it was a body double. I thought it was really. I hadn't, you know, I I had no idea. I couldn't. I didn't. Couldn't tell. Well, I I also saw, also saw a good joke about it. It must have been Kyburn who did the uh, CGI work there. <laughs> <laughs> no one's better at putting heads on bodies than Kyburn. Yeah, they should have given her a scarf. <laughs> So they CGI'd her head onto that naked Yeah, boy. yeah, it was a body double. Yeah. Uh, uh, that is amazing, honestly. Well, maybe people were looking closer. I thought it was really people superb. People were looking close. Tell. Hey, it's a uh, naked female body. Of course people uh, are going to look well, closely. Now. <laughs> apparently there was a Reddit thread where they compared um, Lena's scenes from the movie 300, nude scenes from 300 with this scene. And Whoa. Thereby proved that it was not actually her body. And so, and so when uh, fans ask, why didn't Lena Headey want to do the scene with her own body? Well, there's your answer. Because you have people creepily, you know, checking out these details like raining. that. Yeah, that's like, she's like, uh, that's why. Although, <laughs> honestly, there's some other reasons. And it seems like she was, one of them is that she may have been pregnant during this, this all. This, I'm not sure the timing of her pregnancy and how it lined up with the scenes. But... If it does line up, well, there you go. That's a perfect answer. Like, well, I was pregnant. Of course, we, we can't show that. <laughs> yeah. Then you get all kinds of tinfoil. Like, oh, my God, Cersei's pregnant. Oh, was, oh. <laughs> that would really fuel those Cersei's pregnant theories. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, and for if you don't know what, what Lady Gwyn's talking about, there's a Cersei is pregnant theory going that's kind of going around the, the outskirts of A Song of Ice and Fire fandom. And it basically is relates to the fact the combination of details which are mostly based around the fact that she's slept with several people but the fact that her dresses are getting tighter mm. but i think that's she's also drinking a lot i was gonna of say it's, yeah. it's more to do with her alcoholism <laughs> and just getting older in general yeah, uh, so because it's not her stomach that's, that's everywhere that's you right. know, yeah. well that that's i guess that could be true for pregnancy too but anyway that's not certainly not enough evidence for pregnancy and if she is pregnant well she's killing that child with wine so <laughs> right, right. <laughs> gross uh <laughs> oh, so, so cersei 
Yeah. <laughs> so, as far as the actual scene goes, though, there's a couple other comments we have here. In the in the books, we have her internal monologue, which gives us quite a different look at what's happening, and it gives her, it gives us a, a, a sense of how she starts off confident and then starts to break down as it goes. And her monologue is really interesting. And and Yoke Boy, why don't you talk about this with us for a minute? Take us through it. Yeah, I think it's a really crucial difference, this internal monologue. Like you say, you, you, you get to experience what Cersei's going through, and there's kind of two sides to it. You, you feel very sorry for her, but then the, the monologue re, re, really reveals she's still having really horrible and nasty thoughts about other people. It's not a kind of process where she's, you know, suffering and she's learning. Like, you know, Jamie getting his hand cut off or something. That seems to be a nice kind of parallel with him. It's just, she's just the same old nasty person. And um, one bit that I pulled up was she thinks of Lollis, who went through something horrific in a similar situation. And she thinks if that pale, soft, stupid creature could incite the animals when fully clothed, how much more lust would a queen inspire? You know, it's, that's, that's a horrible thing to think. It's just typical Cersei. And um, another another difference is that in the books we get to see her break more. You know what I mean by, you know, break, kind of emotionally break inside. Um, the scene is about Cersei losing power by her subjects, you know, seeing her naked and losing this magic aura that she had as a kind of queen. Um, There's a quote. Do you want to say it, Lady Gwen? Gowned and crowned, she was a queen. Naked, bloody, limping, she was only a woman, not so different from their wives. More like their mothers than their pretty little maiden daughters. What have I done? Yeah, so you see what she's losing. This, She's kind of losing this aura and uh, you know in a way she's losing a bit of a beauty or it's just the way people have been perceiving her as this lioness queen she's she's just lost it she's like one of their wives now uh, she's not special and she never will be and she knows it in their eyes she, she'll never change their opinion of her now and the scene is really a parallel to the the walk of her grandfather titus's whore who was, or mistress, I should say, who was made to walk like this, and she was actually whipped too, I think. And it, she had to do it for a fortnight, and this was instigated by Tywin. This The mistress broke and cried, and this is where she showed her vulner, vulnerability, the fact she broke and cried and perhaps ran. And, you know, this, this is the moment she lost her power, and Cersei dwells on that. So she resolves to remain strong and full of pride, not to be like Titus's mistress. I am a lioness. I will not cringe for them, she thinks. So she's got this fierce resolve. However, Cersei starts imagining things on a walk. And despite a very defiant start, she eventually sees Maggie the Frog. And this is the final straw for her. She's seen a few other things too, but she sees Maggie and that's it. It's the final straw and this is the moment she breaks. She starts crying and begins to run. And eventually she scrambles on all fours, like a dog, it says, to get back to the Red Keep. And the crowd are laughing and jeering. So there's Cersei losing her power 
and the people of King's Landing have seen her humiliation and will never look her look at her in the same queenly light ever again. So there, there is a lot more going on in the books. In this, you know, it's quite. It's not the biggest scene ever, but it's quite a long scene. There's a lot more depth. Um, there's the backstory with Titus's mistress and Maggie the Frog. Um, but despite its relative simplicity, I thought the show did the scene very well. I personally don't have any gripes thinking, you know, Maggie should have been there. I don't mind that. And I think Lena, body double or no, she was superb uh, throughout the scene. I thought she was great. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting that there's nobody there to help her. Basically, until Kyburn comes up, and of course, then there's the uber creepy Sir Robert Strong. We were really waiting all season long, myself and and Yoke Boy, you too. We were all we we're both kind of chomping at the bit to see what he was going to look like on screen. We weren't sure we'd get to see him this season, but if we did, it would certainly be this moment. And it, we were not disappointed. He looked really creepy, and and uh, even Kevin though did look a, he didn't look hard faced. Pycelle had this really disapproving, frowny look. <laughs> it was kind mm. of funny. So, what did you think about Robert Strong's appearance there, Yoke Boy? Did you think he was as cool as I did? Yeah, I loved it. I must admit, I, you know, Robert Strong really captures my imagination. I really can't wait till we see him in wins. He's one of my, you know, things I'm most excited about, believe it or not. <laughs> and um, I, I did notice a little something. There's an insinuation in the books that Kyburn could have... It's hotly debated. He could have replaced Gregor's head with that of a dwarf's. And in the show, we were in the show. We were actually shown Kyburn receiving a dwarf's head. You know, they they didn't choose to cut this out. They showed the dwarf's head. And then when we see Robert Strong, go back and look at it. He's wearing a he's wearing a red scarf. You you know you can wear a scarf. You, if you got a neck scar, you wear a red scarf. If you saw what I'm saying, this scarf covers up his neck perfect, perfectly, very conveniently disguising any potential scars he's had. I really think that he's got a different head on there. And, That's uh, really exciting. I can't. Yeah, they didn't obviously didn't care much about sending the head to Dorne. They didn't bother to show that. But that doesn't no, mean he couldn't give him another head. He could still give him another head. That's still he definitely did. Kyburn did ask for the dwarf head, so he said he had a use for it. So that is certainly, I think, I think you're right. I think that's what it is. Now, here's a good question related to Cersei from Savannah McCloud. The walk of shame and Marcella's death will likely catalyze Cersei's descent into madness. How will that influence next season's politics, if at all, given her recent powerlessness? Will Tommen be as pliable to her as he was before? Well, thanks for the question, Savvy. Um, I do think that the walk of shame, she had that look of intensity as she was being picked up by Robert, like she was ready to get revenge, like she was ready to, to take action now that she was out of that cell. But yeah, she's yet to learn about Marcella, and that is going to send her to another level of paranoia. And having both of her children die in the same manner is, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot for her to handle. And I do think that it's going to send her down into more chaotic behavior. And if Kevin and Pycelle are murdered like they are in the book and Cersei is kind of in charge de facto, and which is what Littlefinger in the Vale chapter that we put out recently, our analysis of this, the Elaine chapter, we talk about how 
Littlefinger is preparing for the chaos that Cersei getting back in charge is going to bring. And it's, it's, he says that he, even he is impressed at how quickly she's ruining things and messing things up. It's, it's too fast even for him to take advantage of almost. So that tells you a lot. Can I just say, uh, the, the, sorry, the, I think when the question uh, uh, insinuated that Cersei was powerless, I, I totally understand what you're trying to say, but I think, you know, her jumping into Robert Strong's arms is significant. I don't think she is powerless anymore. I think that, you know, she's found... George has brought back the most fearsome character, the most feared warrior in the Seven Kingdoms, and he's undead. <laughs> yeah, Cersei's yeah. got that, yeah. She doesn't need Jamie anymore when she has that. <laughs> he, she's got that. She's got a new kind of power. I mean, when, when, when you look at Cersei, she has to do things like win a trial by combat. You see how significant Robert Strong is. And the Faith Militant is something which arose with force. So they can be, they can be a, you know, they can be got rid of by force too, by that logic. It, it does kind of make her unanswerable. It's true. It does kind of make her untouchable in some ways. You're right. If she can keep, if, if all of her action, misdeeds are judged through trial by combat, she can just keep running the the ungregor out there then yeah she's it's like she's got diplomatic immunity of, <laughs> of sorts <laughs> I, I think in the books kyburn says uh, i'm paraphrasing that he's an unbeatable champion or words to that effect you know what for all kyburn's weirdness i kind of trust him on this one and, and we've i believe i believe that an unbeatable champion let's move on to this next question which is very related from James Michelle, the show is pretty much confirmed. Robert Strong is Gregor. Yeah, that, I certainly agree. That's something I've taken for granted for quite a while. With the casting news of Elder Brother slash Septon Maribald, the hybrid, I think we get Sandor back. Do you think Cersei's trial by combat could actually be Clegane Bowl in the book and the show? To recap, the, some of you may not know, the theory is that Sanson Sandor is probably alive in the books, that he may eventually be the one to face Gregor Clegane's reanimated body and defeat him. That would, have, of course, have to come in the future because Sandor is still in no shape to be fighting. And I think we got to see Gregor, it's new, the new reestablished Gregor, has to kick some ass before he goes down. It would, it would be a real letdown if he just was, you know, not this unbeatable champion like Kyburn says he is. So I don't think Cersei's trial by combat could be the Clegane Bowl. Because, it could be in the show because they could... You know, they could do whatever they want with compressing the time. I do not think that's going to be in the books because Sandor, I just don't think he could possibly be healthy in time. He still has a limp when Brienne sees him. And he doesn't see, there's nothing, he's not responding to the Faith's call to arms as far as we know. So I, yeah, I think that might be something that comes later if it happens at all, but I do not see it happening in the short term. But like I said, I, I, I totally agree with you, Aziz. Everything you said there, I think that you're right. It's too soon. It, people are putting a lot of stock on this Clegane Bowl. And, you know, I don't want to be a killjoy because I think it will happen just at a different time. I think it will happen further down the line. Which is so, better because that, like I said, then we get to see Robert Strong kick some ass first, yeah. which would, we all yes, <laughs> I want to see be built yeah. up. I want to see that. All, or, it's like Cersei has her own, you know, like Danny has her dragons and they're just unstoppable mm. killing. Cer Cersei has a little miniature version of that miniature. I'm calling the Gregor miniature. <laughs> Compared to a dragon, I suppose he is. Whoa, hold on there. Now there's a thought. Un Gregor on a dragon, right? <laughs> That's like a, a shark riding a Tyrannosaurus Rex. 
with a shark with lasers riding a Tyrannosaurus Rex, just trampling and, and lasering. That's like almost like a, a Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. I think it was a shark on the back of an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> just eating and trampling everything in sight. It's, it's, real, it's definitely going to be interesting to see what happens with Cersei and this Sir Robert Strong. It's definitely one of the most compelling, as far as act, potential for action things that we have coming next season. Now, but we, let's not forget about the Tyrells, who have sort of been pushed off to the side a little bit these last few episodes. So a couple of questions here relating to them. Dornish Dan. Olena and Marjorie were always smart enough to curry favor with the small folk. Can't that be used to counterbalance the High Sparrow's support? I'd think so, yes. And in fact, she, Olena even brought that up in, in her conversation with him. She was like, look, who's going to look like, are you going to really look like a good guy to the small folk when we stop sending food? He sort of shrugged the question off. He did a good dancing job like a, like a good politician would. Mm-hmm. But So we didn't really get a full resolution to what he thinks about that. But I do think that's possible. If people are starving and the, the Tyrells politic it properly, if they're able to get the message out that it's not their fault, if they could spin it so that it's the High Septon's fault, it's possible. But I don't know how they're going to pull that off because the High Sparrow is just right there. And he seems to be the one that has the, the lines of communication. He's, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's in the center of it. I like the idea. I'm just not sure how it could how it could be pulled off. You guys have thoughts on that, or is that a something we'll have to wait and see on? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think there's there's going to be more to that. That that was a clear threat. He did try to shrug it off, but his ability to affect that threat would mean he'd have to have some sort of influence in Highgarden. Not, it's not about King's Landing, you know. Yeah, it's true. So I'm not sure he does. So I think it could have been empty words. So we'll see. Okay, and one other question from uh, oh, from Savvy Sand again from Savannah McLeod. We have Olena will doubtless be a part of the King's Line, King's Line, King's Landing plotline next season, as she seems unlikely to give up on her beloved grandchildren. And news of Sansa's disappearance will likely reach King's Landing. Will Littlefinger stay and help Olena as implied, or return north for Sansa? Well, we definitely already talked about the likelihood of Littlefinger looking for Sansa. She's very important to his plan, so I do think that he will. That will be important to him. Although that doesn't necessarily have to be something he does in person. That I'm not sure about. What do you guys think? What do you not just about that, but also the other part of the question about how Elena is going to work things in King's Landing? Uh, well, I, I just want to say, as far as the news of Sansa's disappearance, I don't think that's going to get around very quickly because I doubt the Boltons are going to advertise that they've lost their sort of piece of that puzzle. Um, so I think that'll be a much much more muted news if news at all and then uh yeah i think elena would she's not going to give up on her grandchildren she made that very clear so i definitely think and hope very much that we get to see more of her next season yeah definitely we need to see more queen of thorn she's great as a character the actress is really really great with her as well so yeah let's let's all all, let's all cross our fingers for lots of elena next season all right, let's move on to the next location. We have a lot to cover, as always. Let's go to Dorne, where we have some connected storylines, some storylines that are about to become intertwined. Dorne and King's Landing are about to be very unhappy with each other. And we have this misdirection on the ship here. I thought the parentage reveal was a really effective distraction, and it set up Marcella's death really nicely. 
uh, it was obviously tragic, but it was very sneakily done. I thought they handled it well. And so what do we think about the kiss as far as it affects the Maggie the Frog prophecy? Does it mean, I guess we're, we might be forced into having to see the, their crowns will be gold. That has to mean their hair, which is kind of makes sense because of the, the hair color thing and, and how the Baratheon Lannister genealogy was, was talked about. What do you think, Lady Wynn? Yeah, I think uh, for sure that I've never had any problem with, I mean, it's, it's two possible interpretations, crown, gold, actual golden crowns or crowns of golden hair. So I think uh, that the hair interpretation is very valid, and this definitely seems to support that. So, right on. Yeah. What about the consequences, though? This is really, really major. The Sand Snakes obviously just were willing to throw Tristain under the bus here. Tristain's now basically a hostage of Cersei, who is not exactly the most careful thinker. She's as likely to just kill him outright as she is to keep him as a hostage and to understand his value. You would hope that somebody keeps him from doing that. Uh, so what do you think, Lady Gwynn, on this as well? The consequences of this. Doran is going to be really unhappy. Cersei is going to be even more unhappy. And I don't know how that's going to fall out, though. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, for me, this piece, the consequences, highlighted um, how some of the changes in Doran are kind of problematic, especially the changes to Ilaria Sand's character. Um, this plot to kill Marcella... Uh, with the poison on the ship after she sails off with Tristane is seems really short-sighted. It's obviously vindictive. It's contrary to Doran's wishes. It's contrary to Oberyn's words to Cersei. We did not kill little girls in Dorne. It seems like it's more worthy of a trio of angry teenagers than a grown woman. So, <laughs> I mean, think about it now. Tristane is possibly in very grave danger. And, you know, he's the future of Dorne. He's the only heir in the show. He's Doran's only child. Uh, so they've just possibly delivered him into the hands of some very angry enemies. Uh, personally, would have found it a little more compelling if they had shown a little more characterization with the three girls and maybe, like, let Obara be the one who was the ringleader, and kept Ilaria more in line with her book character. Uh, I said earlier in the season that that was a disappointing change. I would have rather seen her playing that, you know, pleading for peace role. I just don't see a grown woman going along with this plan that's going to bring down, it's not necessarily her house, but the house from which she gets all of her, her power, if she has any. Um, along with the Lannisters, just in favor of revenge. So, which I, I think is a very distinct possibility here that they've really damaged House Martell. Yeah, that's true. I, I really wonder. Doran was kind of playing nice all along. He, he obviously, we got a, a lot of action scenes when we could have just had Jamie saying, hey, can I have Marcella back? Yes, you can. That's how apparently it could have gone. <laughs> <laughs> but no, 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 no. So here is a good question. This is one of the most upvoted questions we've had since we started doing Q&As. Does Marcella dying without being crowned invalidate Maggie's prophecy? This question is from Mr. Tuyagata. 
Um, I don't think it invalidates it. I think it does maybe change it a little bit into what we were saying. Maybe it does refer to the hair color, which is which is valid. I don't think that's a cheap interpretation. After all, the snow castle that Sansa saw the giant destroy turned out to be a stuffed doll and a, a castle made from shaping like a, a sandcastle kind of thing. So it, it, it ha that kind of thing has happened before. The, something grand is, has, has actually been something kind of small before. So that's, that's in, I can see that working. Do you guys have thoughts on that as well? Well, first of all, you know, what are we talking about the books? It's definitely not. I mean, the, definitely, I don't think it affects my opinion of the books at all. But um, I, I'm going to say a bit of on prophecies later on when we come to Mel. But I just think that, they, you know, to, to s summarize what I'm going to say later, <laughs> the show are just terrible with the way they handle prophecies. I just think, uh, whatever. They, I don't think, like you said, I don't think they'll be showing a Bolton fags burning in the future. I just think that they just don't handle them properly. The same in the books, anyway. I think they just, I don't know, I don't think they put much value on keeping to a prophecy, that's all. Yeah, they're majorly important in the books and hardly at all used in the show. And when they do use them, they, they often don't go the whole way. They kind of go, they kind of half-ass it. Stannis was prophesied since season two to have a great battle in the yeah. show. They even mentioned it this season <laughs> again. Okay, his great bat that was the great battle. They got surrounded and slaughtered. Uh, he saw himself in the flames in a great battle in the snow. You know, what, what, I mean, it's just no, I think it's a continuity problem more than anything else. We may have seen the walking the wall of Winterfell thing that some watchers correctly predicted was maybe she was seeing Sansa instead of, of herself. And that may have that may have been what we mm. saw. She certainly did walk the wall and then jump off it. Uh, and we also saw the or rather we didn't see another thing that the kind of went weird with the prophecies was what happened to lightbringer <laughs> he pulls the sword out of the fire in, in season it. two episode one and then right. it never appears again <laughs> well yeah that's that's how they do things like that so i so in the show i don't think they've invalidated the prophecy i think they're just not you know, they're kind of playing loose with it. It's not something they like. They, they they started the season with the Maggie the Frog prophecy and then they didn't really refer to it or have Cersei kind of dwell on it much. It was just it was almost just like a, a neat little thing they threw in that didn't connect to much. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. OK, uh, let's also let's here's another good question from Emnet B. Another question I have for you guys is, could we be getting Jamie in the Riverlands after all? Could Cersei could send him away as a punishment for Marcella. Do you guys think it's a real possibility, or are we just sticking to his change storyline and Dorne? No, I definitely agree with this possibility. I wouldn't have said so at the beginning of the season, but now that we've had the casting news, there's going to be some Riverlands characters. We also have the clue that Walder Frey is still in Arya's plans, and she her list got a lot shorter. Some of the names just vanished from it, but Walder Frey did not. So I, that means that the Riverlands, at least Walder Frey, is in the future. The Blackfish is still out there. So yes, I think Jamie could be sent to the Riverlands. That could be his season six arc. That would make sense. I don't know what else he would be doing in season six, and this would fit pretty well. In fact, he could be the one to meet Elder Brother instead of Brienne, because why would Brienne come back south, especially if Sansa's up there? And if they do, then they've really missed a trick with Lady Stoneheart. You know, if they're going to do that, they've, they've missed a great trick. 
I think it would have sent TV viewers as crazy as it does book readers. Yeah, it would be a real surprise for us book readers now, two seasons later. Yeah, that would be like a, it would be a legitimate surprise. But I don't have a lot of hope for that. <laughs> no, they've left it out and, you know, fair enough to them. But if they're now going to go and tread the same ground just without Lady Stoneheart, then that would be a bit stupid. So I'm wondering what the heck will go on. Also, in reference to that question, I do think Cersei will absolutely 100%, 120% blame Jamie for Marcella's death. She blamed him for Joffrey's death, and he wasn't even, I mean, he, he couldn't have done anything about that. I don't know, he couldn't have done much about this either, but Cersei, that's the way Cersei is. Okay, so let's move on to Bravos. but in between moving on to Bravos, the most upvoted question we've had, period, since we started doing Q&As, comes from our Knight of the Forums, Darren Tucker. The question that everyone wants to know the answer to, uh, us book readers in particular have been anxious about this for so long. What do you put the odds at for George getting the Winds of Winter out for season six? He has ten months. Well, actually, he has about seven months because normally a book, a published book takes about six months from finish to publication. But books that are instant bestsellers or expected to be instant bestsellers get rushed through that process because, well, why not? They can make this money off of it. Of course, The Winds of Winter is an automatic bestseller. All the publishers know this. So it will be rushed. It will, be, it will come out as fast as possible as soon as George says he's done. That will still be several months. I am, by nature, a bit of an optimist, but <laughs> I am still a bit pessimistic about this. I don't think George, George is, maybe he's rushing. He says he is, but he's not going to rush. Ultimately, he's not going to put it out unless he's done, unless he feels like he's done. And so I think it's less than 50%, but there's, there's, there's still hope. What do you guys think? I, I, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to say, yeah, uh, you know, sod it. I think maybe I'm being optimistic. He he said that he is cancelling some of his some of his kind of summer tour dates, but he's keeping a few. And if you think about it, that that's a man who's got things under control. That's like you know he's not cancelling all of them because he has to go flat out. But you know he's cancelling a few. That should tell you something. You know he's still. He's he's in gear to do this. That's what I think. Maybe uh, maybe not. But I think this is he's got to do it. You know he's got to try his hardest. And he wouldn't keep some of the dates that he he hasn't cancelled if if he was worried. That's what I'm trying to say. He's in the driving seat. Right on. Okay. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think that's some that's some good points. Lady Gwen, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I pretty much agree. I think you know. Oh, right now he's traveling. He's in uh, Hamburg and then going to Archipelagon in Finland where he's guest of honor. So, Right on. <laughs> seems like he's got things well enough under control, but then he's going to buckle down for the rest of the year, uh, except maybe one more appearance. Why and... would he cancel if he didn't think he could do it? Why would he cancel some stuff? He would be just he would just go to whatever he wanted if he was going to miss the deadline. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you guys are right. I would love to be wrong. I like to set my expectations low. It makes it makes being it likes it makes being surprised a lot of fun. I get to be I get to be happy. I either get to be happy or I get to be right. I think think uh, you've been doing this longer than we have, Aziz. So perhaps you should have the final call. That's true. I do have uh, I do have the some of the, I do have both of the really long waits under my belt. I did read the series in two thousand one. So this is my third long wait. Mm. Yes, old. I'm a veteran, a waiting veteran. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about Bravos. Lots to talk about here. 
So she didn't kill the insurance salesman, as we thought maybe both would happen, or maybe she would pass him by again. So what do you think about that, young boy? I thought it was a shame. I thought that it wouldn't have taken long. She could have killed him, you know, on her way to, to being with Merrin. And it, it does seem strange to me that they set up that scene so well, you know. But I, I guess it showed that I had simply made the choice between killing for herself and killing for the faceless men. It was a straight out choice. Um, I was a bit a bit annoyed that she didn't... I really wanted her to poison the vinegar because that was my prediction and uh, it didn't come true. <laughs> I've got no idea whether um, Arya will do it next season, whether, whether we're ever going to come back to this insurance salesman or whether it's just going to be a kind of lost thread again. No he idea. doesn't know how lucky he was. <laughs> no, I'm sure that they'd send someone else to kill him. They, mm -hmm. Someone prayed for his death. He's getting it. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's not off the hook, I'm guessing. Okay, here's a good question. From Jake the Fifth. Why wouldn't the show have Arya use Needle? They went through such effort to have Arya tell Marin that she was Arya of House Stark, and the showrunners also went out... Uh, this is my own comment added on here. And the showrunners went out of their way to point out that Needle symbolized revenge. Also, yes. Jake says... Just seems like they really missed out on that opportunity. I know Yoke Boy must be disappointed. Well, Yoke Boy, since he mentions you by name, yes. were you were you disappointed with that? I was di I was disappointed, yes. But you know, look, take a step back from the scene. They wanted him blinded, so her becoming blinded was a, was a justified punishment. So they they didn't want a big sword, you know. They didn't want the physical huge sword. They wanted a small thing so she could pop his eyes. <clears throat> so then in turn she could be blinded. That's mm. that's how I see it. It is a shame, you know, all the stuff. But the stuff like symbolism and important stuff to put readers gets lost in kind of yeah. plot necessity for, you know, the visual thing. They went for the blatant symbolism of the eyes being jammed out, which, <laughs> yes. you know, and paralleled to her blindness instead. Yeah. The, the yeah. literal eye for an eye, sort of almost. <laughs> yeah. and, and, but also, so, but it may mean also that the true revenge is yet to come with Needle. Mm -hmm. And, well, she still has names on her list. So there's mm -hmm. still Wilder Frey, there's still Cersei, and I forget who the third one is. The mountain, I think, was the other one, and he's dead. So she doesn't know about that one. Mm -hmm. And she could recycle some names. She could put Melisandre back on there, on Thoros, right. if she wants to. But don't kill Thoros. <laughs> we, right. like, we like yeah. Thoros. Uh, okay, so let's also see here. We have... It was interesting to see that she was wearing the face of the girl she helped give the gift of mercy to through the fountain. That was a nice touch. I don't know how she found it in that room with all the faces. She must have really, that must have been hard. Looking all over there. She, <laughs> it was, must have been on a lower rung because I didn't see her use the facelift. <laughs> That's right. I have to recycle that joke. So here's a combo shout out and observation from longtime supporter James Saunders, who goes by the name Lord of the Chicken Song. He got us thinking. Uh, that Marin's enjoyment of beating little girls is actually not new. It's actually a bit of continuity, and it's show-only continuity because this does not exist in the books. Marin was particularly vicious when Joffrey ordered Sansa to be hit, and he may have developed a taste for it if he didn't already have it. Well, I have two responses to that. First of all, that's very astute. Second of all, that's really gross. <laughs> but 
I do think, uh, but more importantly, yeah, it is. That is an astute observation. It's 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 the show the showrunners type of continuity. They're like, oh, make sure we keep this guy's viciousness intact. That's mm. important. Let's let's <laughs> let's keep that together. So that's pretty neat it's, it's observation, though. That's he's either developed a taste for it because he he got to do it with Santa, and then he's like, hey, I like this. Um, yeah, that could be it. I don't know. That's 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 a good catch. The actual death of Sir Marin was really brutal. Probably the most gory thing that's been on screen in the entire show quite possibly what did you think yoke boy would you agree i thought it was it was a little bit bloodthirsty wasn't it i mean like we said (laughs) they they didn't want to show stannis getting killed and they show you know a young girl poking someone's eyes out i think uh what, what i was gonna say you know was really answered in that question that um it was like like we said an eye for an eye kind of thing um, it, it was. I was gonna summarize it. It was a shame that we didn't see Needle again. We answered that. True that. So here's another question from Savannah McLeod. Do you think the Arya's relish for vengeance in books and show foreshadows a psychotic break? I. That's an interesting question, but I think that she's learning to be really controlled with her thoughts, even though she still has this this um, desire for revenge, and she's really bloody. I think she also has the sense of control that she's learning from them and that balances it out. So I don't expect that. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree. I think, I think she's relatively focused on the revenge that she needs to take. She's, but she's still maintained her own identity. So I don't think she's going to break anytime. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's, let's keep moving. We have an awful lot to cover and we're running a little short on time. So let's move on to Marine. Marine, Grey Worm, and Masande to lead with Tyrion as the real leader, which is a, a lot different from the books where it's Barristan and the Shave Pate who are having trouble. Barristan is really out of his element. But not only does Tyrion, a, a much better type of character to handle this type of thing, he gets Varys as if from nowhere to help him, which is probably the best guy you can have to help. I, I'm a little weirded out by the thought of Varys having a spy network in Marine, which is... It's a bit of a stretch, even for even if Illyrio set it up for him. It's a different culture, and it's far away. But Tyrion does point out at one point that Illyrio is involved in the slave trade, you know, behind the scenes, because the Pentashi are, were forced out of slavery by the Bravosi, who are, of course, very anti-slavery. So maybe his underhanded dealings with the, the slave trader account for these, uh, these connections, but I think that's being generous. But anyway, more to the point, Tyrion and Varys with Masande and Grey Worm, that's, that's kind of a powerhouse. That's, they should be in pretty good shape there. Which brings me to an interesting question. What kind of conflict are they going to face if they're in such good shape and they're all set up well? Well, that's not very interesting TV, is it? They need some conflict. They need something to deal with. Well, there's the Sons of the Harpy. That's one thing. Uh, The other thing they could potentially be dealing with is the dragons. The dragons could escape somehow. And this could be our introduction to what we all, us book readers, have been waiting for to happen in the show is that Tyrion shows that he knows some things about dragons. So... I still don't know how they're going to get set free. We've, we've tossed around some ideas in previous episodes. Anything from Dario to the Sons of the Harpy. Tyrion himself could do it. There's a lot of possibilities. I'm not even sure that they need to be set free in, in, show, in show canon. I think that it might, they might not need to do it. Just, yeah. Just leave it as it is until Danny gets back. I'm also starting to think that there won't be a Pale Mare parallel. That, that, although that would be something else that they could have to deal with. They could have to deal with a disease outbreak. But and the reason I don't think that's going to happen is simply because Jorah has left the city again. And, and they didn't show anyone getting infected. They could always dial it back and show some of those 
pit fighters that he didn't kill having it. But I feel like they might just be dodging that entirely, and they just want to have the grayscale thing be kind of in limbo until Westeros, which means that Jorah will survive his one-on-one -on -one with Dario, which I think is potential to be very interesting, those two together. The, the show has done a lot of these kind of two got two characters together traveling you know, long distances and having interesting conversations along the way. We've had Jorah and Tyrion. We've had Sandor and Arya. We've had lots of these things. That might be what they're setting up another one of those here. And that could be interesting, but it, it also could go in a very different way. So we, we don't actually have a lot of questions about Marine specifically. So we're going to go ahead and keep moving to north to the Dothraki Sea. Drogon is injured, which... Is that's fair? You know, they did have him get take a lot of spears, so that kind of makes sense. This whole thing with the ring, I think, is a little awkward because apparently, from the behind the 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 behind the scenes stuff, they talk about how it was a breadcrumb, how she's dropping it, expecting someone to find it, which is if you're you want to talk needle in a haystack, this is like needle in an ocean. <laughs> I mean, it's the Dothraki Sea, and that's this vast land of grasslands that is like as broad as asia <laughs> you know and there's also all those dothraki standing there and i think they would find the ring before anyone else would but we did learn about where the ring came from which is interesting i thought maybe it was like an engagement ring to to his daughter which i don't know why she'd still be wearing it since he's dead but Amelia Clark actually revealed an interview, thanks to watcher AU Pack Mule for this information. So she said in an interview that she's had the ring since season one, and it's supposed to be from her mother, Ray Ellis Targaryen. So that's a nice little detail they threw in. Hmm. So sounds like Jorah and Daria are going to find it. We need a name for those two traveling together. I guess it's, uh, ah, Daria. <laughs> I it's hope that than... they've got something really Daria. smart lined up for this instead of those two just finding it. I hope Quaith finds it or something like that. I just can't stand the thought of them. Oh, look, we found the ring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just really, really absurd. That'd be the worst. Totally pointless as well. The silliest coincidence ever, yeah. So now that the season is over, a lot of us are looking for other things to watch on TV. I recommend Amazon Prime because it comes with Amazon Instant Video. Ashea and I are both users of it. We should really be sharing an account, but we both have it. There's a lot, I've rewatched Deadwood recently on it, and I've watched Vikings on it. A lot of good shows on there. They keep adding them. They're really becoming a force equal to Netflix, uh, but, but different than Netflix because they carry a lot of different things. I think to have a, a full arsenal of potential TV, you really need to have both. So there's my plug for them. And you can sign up through historyofwesteros.com, and that'll help out the show and provide yourself with some good content. So let us go to... The Wall, our final location, and this is where we have a lot of questions. Of course, Jon Snow, his death is hugely important in the books and show. Here is, we'll start with a question from James Farley. Jon's death could have easily been done without including the references to Benjen Stark. Do you think that acknowledging Benjen was just a bait and switch? Or are D&D trying to remind unsullied viewers who he is because he'll be important next season? I think it was a bait and switch because when they want to remind people of something, they they do it then, not several episodes early. So I think if we're going to when Benjen, I don't know if he's going to come back. But when we find out what happens to him, they're going to do something similar like that to show 
you know, something to remind us of him, of his existence. No, but if they are going to bring Benjin back, it, you know, it's a good lead in to, to weave it into the plot a little bit early. I mean, this is wishful thinking. And I'm glad they did. They gave us a misdirection because now we know that they're willing to do that. Before, when they'd show the previously on, a lot of times it would be a spoiler because you see, oh, you know, we saw Sirio and Benjin mentioned in this one. Those were both turned out to be misdirection. So now we'll all be on our guard going forward. Like, oh, well, they, they, this is previously on. They're referencing something that, that happened before, but it doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. So I kind of like that because it, it keeps us on our toes a little bit. But yeah, I, I do think that Benjin's fate will be revealed eventually and potentially he'll be alive it might now that John's John's death could lead us to that. You know, Benjamin could be if there's some sort of White Walker Stark connection. That might be why they're holding on to him. I know a few people out there believe that he's a captive of the others, which would be in interesting. I don't know how they'd show that on TV, but that would that would be compelling television potentially. Okay, um, let's see here. So we have a brief chat about Valyrian steel. We're wondering how many more are out there. Now, that's a good question in the show in the books. World West Empire points out that there's around 227 Valyrian steel blades in Westeros. And we don't know what the show is going to do about that. So we have this quote from the books that reminds us, Longclaw had been forged in the fires of old Valyria, forged in dragon flame and set with spells. Last episode, we pointed out that Valyrian steel is likely going to be a bigger deal in the show than in the books, though we do expect it to be important in the books as well. It's kind of like it's been promoted in the show to from somewhat important to very important. Because in the books, we have other these other weapons that seem to be more special and more unique, like Dawn and Lightbringer, which neither of which have a role on the show, we've, we've pointed out to. Lightbringer on the show, like we said, it's Stannis' first scene, and that's it. And Dawn is a throwaway mentioned by Joffrey, and that's it. So it's really not going to be a thing in the show at all. So Stannis' Lightbringer, probably not important to the show. It's, it's almost certainly just a glamoured sword by Melisandre. But Dawn, we can't dismiss. I think Dawn's going to be important in the books. I think, would you guys agree that Dawn's going to be important in the books? I think so. It's, it's It just reeks of mystery. It, it's, it doesn't seem to be Valyrian steel. It's got a unique colour. And it seems to be around thousands of years ago. Everything about Dawn just smacks of mystery. And uh, say that of House Dane too. Yeah, it's it's a, a, a one of the fun corners of the fandom for like the really dedicated fans. House Dane is extremely popular, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are disappointed that they're not hardly in the show at all. But eh, in retrospect, it's kind of predictable, isn't it? Mm. So that th this conversation with Sam and John, I guess, was a reminder to us about the value of Valyrian steel, kind of set up for the future. Since Sam is going to Old Town, as predicted. It's, it does sound like Sam's knowledge, the things he names. It sounds like it's going to be really important, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, it really does. Um, but I have to say, I'm a little bit nervous about Sam and Gilly traversing all of War Tour and Westeros in that horse cart all by themselves. He's Sam the Slayer. He's got nothing to be scared of. Uh, he's, yeah. he's killed a Then and a White Walker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure all the bandits in the Riverlands will be just as simple to deal with, so. So we, we have no talk between them of warning the realm, something we kind of expected last episode. And it may be that the Night's Watch shot themselves in the foot in several ways in that regard by not doing that themselves, although there's nothing stopping them from doing that after the fact, assuming that, you know, uh, Alistair will probably take over as Lord Commander now. Now, you would think that Sam would at least warn the Citadel about what's going on in the North. However... 
from the books, we learn that that Marwin, Archmaster Marwin, the mage, thinks this is a bad idea. But Stam, Stam, Sam sputtered. The other Archmasters, the Seneschal, what should I tell them? Tell them how wise and good they are. Tell them that Aemon commanded you to put yourself into their hands. Tell them that you have always dreamed that one day you might be allowed to wear the chain and serve the greater good, that service is the highest honor and obedience the highest virtue. But say nothing of prophecies or dragons unless you fancy poison in your porridge. Of course, that even that is not agreed on by everybody. There are some who don't think much of Marwyn. Armin pursed his lips in disapproval. Marwyn is unsound. Archmeister Periston would be the first to tell you that. So we're not really sure. I, I would side with Marwyn, probably. He seems to know some things, and, and it's fun to side with the supernatural guy, especially because the maesters are always downplaying such things. That's kind of their M.O., their modus operandi. He's got some things in common with Setson Baft. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's maybe the... Uh, the modern parallel to Septon Barth, the, the the kind of the rogue who seems to always be right and gets a bad rep because of it. So at the wall, Melisandre arrives, and this is a good time to talk about some of the other things that she may have gotten wrong. We talked about her walking the walls of Winterfell, and we talked about the Bolton banners burning. But now is the time for us to circle back to your thoughts on Melisandre's prophecies, your boy, and how the show has not done such a good job of that. Yeah, I hate to gripe, but, you know, in the books, prophecies are one of my favorite things. They're, I think they're a really great writing device uh, that give depth and intrigue, and George just uses them very, very well. As you can see, you know, in the forums, everyone's trying to decipher them. It's because it's added depth to people's enjoyment. Uh, my beef with the male prophecies in the show is that in, I think that they're simply wrong. They'll just never be followed up. She's just simply wrong. There's not much more to it than that, I don't think. Uh, in, in the books, it's Mel's interpretation that's wayward. It's the interpretation. She even says prophecy, you know, the fires are never wrong. You know, it's the human error. And, you know, that's... It writes so well, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. And you, you get like, for example, Mel has the thing with Renly's ghost. It was her interpretation that it was going to be Renly. The fires were true, but it it turned out that it wasn't. It it was Garland was in his armor. Uh, yes, and yeah, it's just a, a, an example of how they used it. I guess that they the, Mel's prophecies could come true at a later date, but I just think they'll just just drop them all of them. That was it. And when you consider how weak the Valenquois has been, I think even if you're a great fan of the show, the, the I mean, what was the point in bringing the Valenquois in? It, they didn't even use the Valenquois part, and they they didn't really use it to any, any effective way. It had zero impact on the story. I would actually say they could have missed out the Valenquois se sequence, and nothing would have changed in the plot. They could have had the same plot and it would have made perfect sense they really didn't need to do it so i think it's a shame i don't know what you watching us think but you know i'm not happy with the way that they kind of mess around prophecies that they, they, they could be doing it it could be given a great depth to this show everyone trying to figure them out and they come true in a way you don't expect but now they're just all they're just all kind of total really kind of 
bad red herrings that don't even come true. Yeah, sorry, I rant. I feel very strongly about prophecies. <laughs> so I think that a good question is what's next for Davos? Talk about somebody who's lost everything. He has no king. The, Stannis was his everything, and he loved Shireen. And Book Stannis has, or Book Davos rather, has sons still. So whenever, assuming his sons will still be alive after Stannis dies in the books, presumably Davos is still alive at that point, maybe not. It's hard to connect those two thoughts. So in the show, I've seen people suggest that Davos will take, take the black, but we've also talked earlier in this episode about the possibility that he'll go off and search for Rickon like he does in the book. And I think those are both very valid possibilities, but I don't see, I'm not really confident in pushing one idea over the other. I think they're very both very valid possibilities. Although I don't want Davos to join the Night's Watch because I think the Night's Watch is doomed and I hope Davos lives. So that would not work for me as a fan. I would I would feel uh, scared for him if that happened. <laughs> what about you guys? Do you, what do you think happens, is next for Davos? Yeah, I, either one of those is a possibility. I also could, you know, given the fact that he was so close with Shireen, you know, say Sansa does show up at the wall, uh, I could see him, you know, doing something to help her becoming involved in her storyline somehow to give him purpose. What, what about going to Dawn for the season? <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> so here's, let's talk about the actual For the Watch moment. A lot of people were worried that it would be Ollie kind of by himself, just making it about his parents. And by the way, someone... I've seen this image going around on, on social media of someone editing Ollie's Wikipedia page to say that after he, after the destruction of the economy and manpower at the watch, young Ollie went on to found the Third Reich. Oh. <laughs> Ollie is the most hated character on television, which is just bizarre. Poor this actor probably walks around town getting, ah, fuck you, Ollie. And he's just like, what? <laughs> I think that's so sad. People have missed the pathos of this is yeah, a little boy whose parents were killed it. and eaten in front of his eyes. <laughs> My God. We said this before. It was the same with Bowen Marsh. We, we, well, I think that Bowen Marsh was meant to be a sympathetic kind of villain yes but very sympathetic and everyone missed the sympathy you know they didn't they just hated him and I, I think sometimes people miss the grayness that George paints in yeah it's true so uh, not that not that George designed Ollie but the, the, certainly, <laughs> yeah. the certainly grayness that you can liken to a uh, bone marsh okay so let's talk about the actual moment the actual moment of his death I thought it was pretty well done I, I you know it didn't have everything there was no crazy chaos with one one and other things going on let's review real quick how it does happen in the book so we can make a, a nice effective comparison let's have lady gwyn read us the scene here it is it starts with john speaking wick put that knife away he meant to say when wick whittlestick slashed at his throat the word turned into a grunt john twisted from the knife just enough so it barely grazed his skin he cut me when he put his hand to the side of his neck, blood welled between his fingers. Why? For the watch, Wick slashed at him again. This time John caught his wrist and bent his arm back until he dropped the dagger. The gangling steward backed away, his hands upraised as if to say, Not me, it was not me. Men were screaming. John reached for Longclaw, but his fingers had grown stiff and clumsy. 
Somehow he could not seem to get the sword free of its scabbard. Then Bowenmar stood there before him, tears running down his cheeks. For the watch, he punched John in the belly. When he pulled his hand away, the dagger stayed where he had buried it. John fell to his knees. He found the dagger's hilt and wrenched it free. In the cold night air, the wound was smoking. Ghost, he whispered. Pain washed over him. Stick them with the pointy end. When the third dagger took him between the shoulder blades, he gave a grunt and fell face first into the snow. He never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. It's interesting because there's some, unlike the books, where George can, can basically conceal what he wants to. He can basically do what he wants because it's easy for him to keep things a secret. Besides the things that he's told to the showrunners, everything's locked in his head. There's no way for it to get out. There's no way for, unless he accidentally says something he's not supposed to or, or just let something slip. This is a much, much, much different situation for the showrunners. They can't exactly, they can't conceal Kit Harrington's participation in a season. He's a human being and there's hundreds of people on set, some of whom are, you know, contractors or extras. They have very little incentive not to let these, not to tell their friends about the gossip and that, those things would always spread if, if, if that kind of news gets dropped. So it's a really interesting question of whether he's going to be back or not. And it, the fact that he says he won't be back is, what do we, I don't know. What do you think? Do we, do we think he's lying about that? Is he being honest? It's weird to me. If he's lying, it's going to come out. We'll see him. Or he could be lying about, maybe it was misdirection. Maybe he'll be back in season seven, but not season six. Mm. What do you think, Yoke Boy? I think you have to consider that there's a serious, serious weight on Kit Harrington, On him keeping the secret of George R. R. Martin's biggest cliffhanger, a book that sold like 50 million copies. And you've got the TV show Cliffhanger 2. He's got all this weight on him. And you know he's going to get asked what, what what you're doing, and I don't I don't know I, I'd forgive him I'd forgive him for telling a lie, if you see what I mean. Um, I, I can't I I can't see him not being in next season, and I can't see how he would answer a question. Yeah, how's he going to say yes? I'll be back. What's he? Yeah, I was like, how yeah, is I'll he supposed back. to tell the truth? Yeah, you're, and not mess the day after up. the episode, I'll just tell everybody. Yeah, I'll be back next year. You see that big pile of? Although I was stabbed ten times, and you saw all the blood, but no worries, I'm fine. <laughs> it was fake blood. <laughs> I mean, I I don't like people putting me on the spot and asking. I mean, it's just we shouldn't be analysing what Kit Harrington says and stuff. We should be intrigued by the books and the. And the show and looking for clues and that, not kind of analyzing Kit Harrington, but that's what it's kind of come down to. That's how hungry <laughs> everyone is. One thing that's missing from the show that's in the books is the possibility for John to warg into ghost. So we some of yes. us think that the second life is gonna be what's happening. The the Vermeer epilogue or prologue chapter is perhaps foreshadowing what John will do. That theory is a bit dampened by the lack of its possibility on the show, but it doesn't, not much of a dampener since it can easily go a much different way in the books. What do you think about that, Yoke Boy? Uh, the whole idea for how John is going to come back, that's a mechanism. Yeah, I've got that... very, very kind of, uh, not so, what's the word? I have very, very sure ideas of what I think will happen in the books, but we've got no time to talk about that. It does involve Second Life. Um, but in the show, I just think they'll go for a straightforward resurrection. John wasn't a, wa wasn't a warg. 
Simple as that. None of the Stark kids were, apart from Bran, wasn't it? So that's it. It's just a straightforward resurrection. And it's it's some coincidence that Mel arrives at that point, isn't it? It's a really yeah. weird coincidence. They've already shaded in that Red Priest can do this magic with uh, well, Thoros. Yeah. And they've also just reminded us that Mel can do blood magic in that Stannis scene. That's right. So yes. They, they Very, that true. Out, so. Very true. Very yeah. true. Yeah. So this this was we were sort of answering a question by James Farley here who mentioned other possibilities for resurrection means, which is kind of what we're discussing. So it's yeah, there's a lot of a lot of possibilities there and a lot of different types of supernatural energy we've seen and, and how it could happen. Melisandre's got options in the show, what choice they'll make. It's really hard to predict. But one thing I would I think we can all agree on is that John will not be the same. Uh, he will right. be different. Yeah, I mean, that, surely that's the purpose of doing this. It's not just a cliffhanger and John stabs, resurrected, goes back to before. That that's not George R. R. Martin. That's not the HBO show either. It, there's got to be some kind of cost, hasn't there? Um, it's the only reason to kill John is to to change him. Um, in, in the books, I think he'll spend more time in Ghost. And it pretty much spells out that if you do this for too long, your mind mixes with the wolves. So I would expect John in the books to come back more feral, aggressive, more with a bit of ghost in him, you know. So and this sets him up to fight the supernatural foe. In the show, I just think he'll he'll just come back more of a badass, more aggressive. But there'll be a flip side. He'll be a bit darker. I can't see them giving John a boon for being killed. <laughs> I see him giving him a boon, but also giving him a bit of darkness to to address the balance. That seems to be more the way things would go. So what do you think is going to happen in terms of the Night's Watch now that John is dead, as far as the Wildlings and Tormund and, and everybody? The Wildlings have got the numbers, haven't they? Both in the show and in the books. I think if we're talking show... What's holding them back? I mean, the only thing that was holding it together was John and perhaps, you know, the attitude of Tormund, who was friendly with John. Now that's kind of, kind of, uh, is, is disappeared. There's nothing holding the Wildlings back. We saw they've got the numbers. The Night's Watch are in a tiny minority. Uh, there's no way that the Night's Watch will be able to tell the Wildlings what to do. You know, how are they going to have any power over them? No way, the wildlings are taking over, as Michael, in, in both mediums. Right on, and there's also the Army of the Dead coming. So the Night's Watch, this is part of why I think the Night's Watch is doomed. Not only is it kind of foreshadowed that the wall might come down or that the White Walkers will at least get past it, but they're faced with this wildling onslaught now. So they're, yeah, and they're so pitifully small in terms of numbers. Doesn't look good for the Watch, not at all. Here's a question from Minge Forever. Don't you think it's rather tragic that Jon lost his power to see through people at the moment he needs it most? Rereading A Game of Thrones makes me rather sad. A bastard had to learn the notice to notice things, to read the truth behind people. Yeah, to read the truth that people hid behind their eyes. Well, it was kind of sudden. They, they kind of snuck up on him and, and delivered the shocking news, and he hardly had time to think about it. But at the same time, yeah, they don't. that's not something that they really developed with Jon in the show. No, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and of course in the books he's forewarned by Melisandre with a Daggers of Dark in his first chapter yeah and he still uh, doesn't really yeah, no, he's still kind he of oblivious. doesn't take it in so I don't know that this was something that even George carried through Not, and I don't mean that he missed it that he didn't 
have John develop into some great reader of people. So, yeah, that didn't ever, I don't know if that ever really happened. <laughs> so that was a good reading there, uh, Lady Gwen. We have a, a comment from Marcy Birday. Quick question for Lady Gwen. Love the dramatic reading of Old Nan's Tales you did on your guys' yeah. show. Can we expect any more readings from the book from you? Well, this is a good opportunity for you guys to plug your next episode and to mention the fact that you do readings rather regularly in, on Radio Westeros, don't you? Yes, we have at least two in every episode. Uh, we don't always put them independently on YouTube like we did with uh, the Old Nans one. But yes, definitely uh, expect more dramatic readings from us. And we're actually always trying to improve them by adding more dramatic elements. So. We've got an episode out tomorrow, Battle of Fire. We've got Aziz is joining us. We've got Brendan Beefish is is becoming our third member for this episode, who we love from Wars of Politics of Ice and Fire uh, blog and podcast. We've got um, Valkyris from Vassals of Kingsgrave, and we've got uh, Stephen Atwell from Race for the Iron Throne. It's a great group. It'll be out tomorrow, guys. That's Radio right. com. I got a little part in there myself doing some history of the Giscari, so it's uh, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm excited to hear how that came out, too. And that relates to another question from Minge Forever. What is the next book-only episode going to be about? Will Gwen and Yokeboy ever be joining you in book-only episodes? Well, yes, I think so. We'll, we'll probably, we've talked about planning some possibilities in the future. It's going to depend on topics. Basically, what I like to do is when we have, we, we have certain people that we know are really good on certain topics, and we like to bring them in when we do certain topics. And we're working on the Blackfire stuff right now. We've, we've got some people lined up for that, and we're going to do Summer Hall after that. And I'm not sure what's going to come after that, but when the time is right, certainly we're, you're going to see me on their show and them on our show. And yes, we're, yeah, we're all we'll very... work together as much as we can, won't we, Aziz? We, we love yeah. this scene, don't we? Exactly. So uh, also from Ostrich Stark, now season five is over. Will you guys plus Ash be teaming up for some book only podcast together? Related question. Ash will certainly be back for the book only podcasts. She'll be in the majority of them going forward. Not sure about season six for next year, but definitely we'll be seeing a lot more of her in the history episodes. Okay, so we're running short on time. A lot of great questions didn't get answered. I'm going to run through our credits and then take a couple more questions at the end using every second we have. Thanks to our Hand of the King and First Lord Cash Craig, a.k.a. Baxis, on the History of Westeros forums. Our Warden of the North is Lord Parker, the Bastard of Starkville, the Breaker of the First Stone. We have Warden of the West, Jim, Lord Jim, the fortuitous of Wars and Politics of the Song of Ice and Fire. We have our Master of Coin and First Counselor, Lord Robert Jacobs, and our Master of Whisperers, Lord James the Scholar. Grandmaster Itai wears the jeweled collar of many medals. Rosie the Clever is our Master of Laws, and Lord James Tuttle is our Master of Ships. History of Westeros Night's Watch, Lord Commander is George the Golden. The History of Westeros Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Shepard. Sir Troy the Steady swings the Valyrian steel blade fate as the history of Westeros King's justice. Lady Dialys of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Lord Nathan of the Fireford. Dan of the Red Mountains, Lord of Great Bell and Breaker of the Second Stone. Lady April Lauren Boyd Stark. And Frontier Lord James Knox of the Poker Fort, Hammer of the Dornish Session. Make up the list of our lordly lords providing lordly support. So don't forget, we'll be doing more episodes, more Q&A, one more episode related to season five coming with the team next week ish we'll be announcing the time and we'll also be doing a support group episode possibly about a month from now not sure about that and that's going to be discussing how to handle the show passing the books and we're going to take a longer look at what things may or may not have been spoiled and how to deal with that as a as an anxious book reader 
we'll talk more as well about the timing of the winds of winter. So let's see here. It's been a uh, it's it's been a great season, and I hope you all join us for our recaps as well. And I hope that everyone has had a fun time this season, but it's not quite over yet as far as our discussions go. HBO is done, but we are not. Thanks as well to you guys from Radio Westeros for being here with me all season. It's been a lot of fun, and we do have a little bit left still. I hope you guys join us for the recap. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks for inviting us. And, you know, I hope your watching us have really enjoyed it because it's, you know, great to speak to a new audience. And, you know, hopefully some of those come over and we can uh, make a little podcast scene. Right on. So let's see here. Lady Gwen, did you have any last words? Thank you for having me. I really have enjoyed this and actually look forward to the wrap up episode. Awesome. Well, we still have lots to say. <laughs> we do. And, and and frankly, there were a lot of really good questions we just did not have time for. So I think what we'll do with the wrap up, we'll have some major topics, but we'll also just try to take questions and focus entirely on questions, lesser, less on what we have prepared and really just focus on questions because really you guys ask the questions that need to be asked. We, we Most of what we said was also asked in the form of a question. We answered some things without selecting the questions because you guys asked the questions that we were thinking of answering already. So it really shows how the level of intelligence and interest and knowledge you guys have about the series, which makes me really happy. I love, I really get bored with talking about the series with people that don't know it very well. So I'm really happy to have people, not only the Radio Westeros team, but you, our lovely, intelligent listeners, who ask us such wonderful questions and get us thinking about, you know, really get our, our gears turning on what to think about and take us in new places and really show us why this series is so much fun uh, because of its depth and how even no matter how well we know the material, there's always things we can miss. And you guys are there to catch it for us and bring it to our attention so we can discuss it. So until next week and looking forward to non-TV show episodes as well. Valor Morgdullis, everybody. Sorry to those who didn't get their questions answered, but ask them again, and odds are pretty good you'll get them handled. All right, Valor Morgdullis, everybody. With the season over and book to show being even more confusing than it's ever been, now is the time to reread A Song of Ice and Fire. But if you don't want to sit down and take the time to do it, why not combine it with other activities by listening to it on audiobook? Go to historyofwestros.com and click on the link in the upper right, audible.com trial, where you can get a 30-day free experience with Audible, where you can try out listening to audiobooks for yourself and see if it's for you. I myself am a huge fan of audiobooks. I've listened to all the books more times than I can count. And it's a great way to keep fresh and to keep the changes from book to show straight. Because let me tell you, there's so many confusing things, even I, after so many listens, have trouble with some of the minor details. And of course, it's just fun. It's a better thing to do than when you're doing chores or exercise or commuting, or if you have time at work waiting for something, digging into a Song of Ice and Fire is far better than doing those things by themselves. So do yourself a favor, check out audible.com's free 30-day trial through History of Westeros, and enjoy. Valor Margolis.